Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 273, Dr. Timothy Paul's In Defense of Extended Conciliar Christology, Part 2. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, you'll hear the second half of my conversation with analytic theologian Dr. Timothy Paul about his new book in which he adds to his defense of what he calls conciliar Christology, defending even several related theses. And some of these related theses are kind of out there, but some of them, as you'll hear, relate to questions that I think any reader of the New Testament is going to have about Jesus. Also, there will be heavy metal that I hope will make up for last week's thinking music. Dr. Paul, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you for having me, Dale. So your recent book, In Defense of Extended Conciliar Christology, deals with a number of claims that aren't necessarily essential to conciliar Christology, but are related, in some cases very closely related. But you start off with, maybe this is the least related, it's kind of the one that people think the least about, which is the topic of multiple incarnations. Mm -hmm. This is in chapters two and three. So what is this topic of multiple incarnations? What sort of questions are you asking in those chapters? Yeah, so there I distinguish four different ways you might use the language of multiple incarnations. You might think, for instance, that multiple natures could be assumed. So not only the one that Christ in fact assumed on Orthodox Christian doctrine, what I call CHN, Christ's human nature, but other natures could have been assumed too. Or you might ask which persons, which divine persons could do assuming. Is it only the Son or could the Father and the Holy Spirit assume as well? And you might ask what temporal relations there are between when assumptions can occur. Could you have two simultaneously? Could you have two by the same person but only sequentially? And finally, you might ask whether multiple divine persons could share, so to speak, the very same assumed human nature. I love Aquinas on this, because for Aquinas, he's got just about as robust a view as you could have. He thinks that multiple incarnations are possible in the following sense. Each of the divine persons could become incarnate. He thinks that because they all share one power, since they have one nature, and and so anything one can do in the world the others could do in the world too. And the Son can become incarnate, so it follows that the Holy Spirit can become incarnate, and the same for the Father. So he thinks each of the persons could assume some human nature or other. And furthermore, he thinks they could all share. So he thinks, he doesn't say it this way, but he says the claim I just made about each person can assume and that they could share, he thinks that they could all three have one same human nature such that they're all three assuming that one nature in the same way that the Logos assumed Christ's human nature in the actual world, according to traditional Christology. Wow. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) When we talk about it abstractly, like we don't realize like kind of how outrageous these uh, scenarios are. For instance, if there could be incarnations in multiple natures at the same time, then the sun's incarnation is still going on now. And yet there could be another person come along. I don't know, call him super Christ. (laughs) He's an incarnation of all three or call him Trinity man or something. That's really quite a suggestion. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Or you could get the Trinity being incarnate in, you know, two parents and a child, you know, Bill Hillary and Chelsea Now you have the Trinity in three beings. You even discuss in your chapter, look, does it have to really be a human nature? Why not some other nature, you know? Yeah. If you've satisfied your worries about impossibility with human nature, I mean, what if it's a cat nature? I mean, what's going to be all the more impossible about that? Right. Looks like you would give the same sort of strategies for solving those concerns as well. Although you mentioned that some of the authors, maybe most of them, shy away from something that's not a human. Yeah. They think it should be fitting according to what it is. And so it has to be rational and it has to be redeemable as well. So that's why they think angels couldn't be assumed because though the angels would be fitting in virtue of their rationality, 
their angelic psychology, at least Aquinas's angelic psychology, precludes the possibility of angels repenting and coming back to right relation with God after they've fallen. Hmm. I have met some unredeemable cats, but I don't know. I think I've met some <laughs> redeemable ones too. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I wouldn't say, uh, you know, like you said, Trinity man or call him Trinity man. I mean, in that sort of case, you would have it be a them. It'd be three persons all with that same one body. So it'd be Trinity men. It'd be like something like multiple personality disorder, except they really would be persons and it wouldn't be a kind of mental illness. Yep. Three persons, two natures, two wills, two intellects. It's enough to boggle the mind, but it's not enough to be contradictory. (laughs) Just enough to boggle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I am aware that in tradition, some people, for instance, Justin Martyr, have said things I think would imply that the father couldn't become incarnate. Mm. Other people, I don't know, they just think it was the son. For some reason, this was appropriate. I'm not aware of people in the tradition that really take these as possibilities that we actually need to be on the lookout for. Right. But I guess maybe that's just because Christ is supposed to be like the last and best revelation of God. So then there wouldn't be need for these things. Yeah, that, and that's a good point. I'm glad you raised it. There's one question. What can God do given God's absolute power? Not asking what he can do in this creation, given his providential plan, which he's revealed to us, at least in part, in sacred scripture, but rather just take all the rails off, let him begin anew, so to speak, and create any providential plan at all. Is there even a single providential plan in which God and God's omnipotence can become incarnate in more than one divine person? And there, I think, The answer is yeah, but given what we have revealed to us in sacred scripture, we have good reason to think that it's only the Son who has and will become incarnate. Isn't this the sort of investigation that gets uh, high medieval philosophy and theology a bad name? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not asking like how many... How many divine persons can dance on a, in a single pair of shoes or something, you know? But the answer there for Aquinas would be three, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think these arguments are premised on fairly plausible premises. I mean, you'll see it's things like anything one divine person can do in the world, the other divine persons can do as well. And once you grant that sort of claim, that there's not an inequality of power with respect to creation among the three persons, it's fairly easy to see how you would get the possibility of other persons becoming incarnate out of that. I guess in recent times, one interest people have in this is they think that if God's going to become man, somehow that would be unfair if it only happened in Christian tradition. Why couldn't he be incarnate as the founder of Baha'i or some Hindu holy man or something like that? If multiple incarnations were possible, then I guess they would think that would open the door to kind of God revealing himself through all these different traditions. But, I mean, Thomas Aquinas wasn't sitting around wondering about that, right? No, not at all. This was not a speculation concerning what could happen in the actual world, in the current providential plan that the Lord has revealed through Scripture. This is a speculation Mm. about just the absolute power of God. Mm. So, yeah, I don't think Aquinas was a budding pluralist in the sense of thinking that there's probably a divine person hanging out anywhere you have a people group. Mm. That's not anything I think he would ever commit himself to. Mm-hmm. When the Trinity's podcast returns, a tough problem for two natures theories brought about by the death of Jesus and his alleged activity in between his death and resurrection. Some readers might say, what have I got myself into in chapters two and three? Yeah. You're defending uh, all these different possibilities that usually don't get brought up in Christian tradition, unless you're reading these guys, Aquinas and company. But uh, I thought the objection in chapter four was particularly challenging and really something any Christian ought to think about. It has to do with what Jesus is supposed to be doing between his death and resurrection. Right. 
the two natures theory says that the word assumed mysteriously somehow came into a relationship with a complete human nature. And that's normally spelled out as a composite of body and soul. But at death, if you're a dualist, you think the body and soul, usually you think the body and soul are separated. You could take a different position, I suppose. But the point is, it's part of a lot of Christian traditions, such as the uh, Apostles' Creed, that Jesus went and did things in Hades or in hell, that he had some ministry in between the Friday evening and the Sunday morning. Okay, but then he's doing things, presumably the body's in the tomb, and then the soul is in Hades. Mm-hmm. But there is not any longer a composite of body and soul then. But if there's not a composite of body and soul, how can there be the same mysterious union between the word and this complete human nature? Because there isn't a complete human nature on this day. Yep. So the incarnation is supposed to be permanent. I think a lot of people don't realize this, but as long as there's been this type of view, they've held that it's a permanent union. Um, But Mm -hmm. it looks like it would be interrupted by that. This looks like actually a pretty tough problem. You explore two ways of answering it. How are we supposed to get around this? Yep. So here's one of the two ways, and I I like the way you put the problem. I think it's a good way of putting it. One way is to say that the union that holds between the person and the human nature, it holds by means of holding between the person and the component parts of the human nature. So the idea here is there's a belligerent drunk at the bar and the bouncer picks him up by the collar and the belt, and then he tosses him out the bar door. Well, the bouncer picks the guy up. The guy is picked up. But we can say the means by which he's picked up is through grabbing the collar and grabbing the belt. Or if collar and belt aren't sufficiently parts of a guy, let it be instead an arm and a leg that he picks him up by. Or his two ears. That'd be terrible, but let it be that. How about a man bun and a ponytail? (laughs) Can you have both those things? (laughs) I don't know if you have enough hair. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, (laughs) Contradiction averted by having two clumps of hair. (laughs) Wait, I think I'm getting lost though. So how does this help with the difficulty? Yeah. So the idea is this, just like the bouncer can lift a whole man in virtue of lifting the parts of the man. So likewise, the son can assume the whole nature in virtue of getting in a special relation to each of the parts, the body and the soul of the nature. And then when those two parts are separated, it's true that there's no longer a human nature there because a human nature is a composite of body and soul combined together. There's no human nature there. So as Aquinas says, Christ isn't a man during the three days of death. And yet, you can still have the same relations holding, just still holding to the same parts, but not holding to a man anymore, because there is no human nature there. Oh, that seems like a pretty costly admission to say that he's not a man on that day. Isn't that an unacceptable cost? Oh, I don't think so. Because the incarnation is supposed to be everlasting and continuous, and it's supposed to involve being truly human, but then he wouldn't be truly human, right? Yeah, for those three days of death, he was not truly human on this view. This is just one of two responses you could give. Mm -hmm. But as long as you think the human is a composite of body and soul, and you think like Aquinas thought the body and soul union is broken at death, strictly speaking, there's not a human there during those three days of death. They say things like, you can say it's a dead man, but you can't say it's a man. Why can't they just say, hey, the soul just stays with the body. The soul is just deactivated now, but it's actually just chilling out in the tomb with the body doing nothing because it's a dead Mm -hmm. body. So the soul is sort of lacking its normal powers. But then Christ goes and does this stuff just with his divine nature, because then you'd still have a body and soul, but it'd be a dead person. And then, oh, he's still in union with that. That's okay. So he's still a human. Is it just because the dualist usually thinks the soul is active? Well, I guess I think of it like this. Christ descended into hell during those three days of death. And the question is, in virtue of what did he descend? Now, it's surely not the body. The body stayed in the tomb. And the divine nature isn't the sort of thing to move around like that. So the component in virtue of which he could descend into hell seems to me is just the soul. And so it's the soul that descends. So it can't be just hanging around inactive with the body 
sort of in a soul sleep, but it's, okay. it's out there doing stuff. Okay. You accept enough of classical theism so that the divine nature can't be doing this sorts of things because it involved change and location and yeah. being affected by things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that closes that door, doesn't it? Dr. Paul, what's the other solution that you mentioned? The second way to make sense of this descent into hell and whether or not you have a human nature there might go like this. As you noted, Dale, and I think you're right, the union is called permanent in the councils and, and elsewhere. It's supposed to be a permanent union between the two. The question is, how might we understand permanence here? And one way you might understand it is, I think, kind of a, an intuitive way, uh, never, ever going to stop, never going to be concluded. Mm -hmm. And if that's what it means, then you're not going to have a three-day blip where it's not happening. Mm -hmm. Because to have the three-day blip would be to have it be stopped or concluded for at least a little bit. But what if you understood the permanency like this? It means that necessarily, if it were the case that the word existed and the nature existed, and of course the word necessarily exists, so you're always going to have that condition fulfilled. But as long as they both exist, then they'll be united. The assumption is permanent insofar as the nature can't exist and be unassumed, at least in this providential plan. On this view, then you could say that that condition of permanency is fulfilled even in the three days of death. Because it's not that the nature, the human nature exists, but is unassumed. It's that it doesn't even exist. So no fault it being not attached if it's not even existing. That's the idea. Mm. Yeah, I just realized another, I think, kind of serious problem is that if the nature goes out of existence and then this nature comes back into existence, it's not clear if it's the same nature or not. I mean, it's not clear that a human nature can exist disassembled mm -hmm. and then just exist. And then, okay, we just put it back together, but it's the same thing, but now it's back together. Yeah, that's the problem of the resurrection of the dead. That you have non-united natures for a long time. And then somehow, in some way, you get the same person later mm. with a reunited body and soul. So, mm. I mean, we're in good company if we're in the company of Christ in that problem. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it depend, it's going to depend on what you say about human beings, whether, whether this occurs in resurrection, right? Um, That's right. If you think the only essential part to a human being is the soul, then even if the soul doesn't do anything in the intermediate state, it might just continuously exist and then just exist embodied. But that wouldn't be treating a human being like a composite of body and soul, I guess. Yeah, that's true, but I think you're right. If you had the view... I mean, it's sometimes called Cartesian dualism, but if you have the view that you're just the soul, um, and sometimes you're interestingly related to a body in a really tight, integral way, then mm, you wouldn't have you going out of existence, and you wouldn't even have the nature, if the nature just is the soul, I guess. Mm. You wouldn't even have the nature going out of existence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not really fond of this view, since uh, I think there's good liturgical evidence for this not being the understanding of permanent uh, in mind by these folks. And in the, in the book, I cite some examples from a liturgy that say that not even for a moment, not even in death, was the union broken. And if that's the view you have, uh, I think this newfangled notion of permanence that I'm putting forward here isn't going to work. Mm. But that's based on liturgical evidence. And, you know, your mileage will vary, but by how much you think the liturgical sayings of the church should be taken as evidence here. When the Trinity's podcast returns... If Jesus is fully divine, then how can he have been tempted? Dr. Paul, some of the things you discuss in the book are issues I think that arise for any intelligent New Testament reader. Two of these are the extent of Jesus's knowledge and also that he seems to have been tempted. Right. Let's take his being tempted. Both of us accept the method of perfect being theology, although we differ, I think, in what the outcome of that is. But we agree with the general method, so we think that God is essentially omniscient and omnipotent. 
And it seems to me like a being like that just couldn't be tempted because being omniscient, he'll always see all the options, know all the moral facts, know what his own aims are. And anything that's a bad choice, whether it's a morally bad choice or whether it's just a choice that's against his own purposes, I just think no choice like that could appear like a good idea to an all-powerful and omnipotent being. Maybe you have to add in that he's perfect through himself or something, like not lacking. He can't be like starving or lacking in sleep or something. But Mm -hmm. given that a divine being is kind of well-off and blessed in his own right and knows all and is all-powerful, it just seems like to me there's no possible grip you could get on a being like that to tempt them because they'll always just see a bad choice as a bad choice overall, and there's always something better to do. If they don't think that a bad choice looks good, they're not going to get that pull that temptation requires. And uh, you discuss this in the book, the phenomenology of temptation, that there has to be something kind of gripping you, giving you a strong motive. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not really temptation at all. Don't you have divinity just ruling out temptability right there? I like that question. I think it's a really good one. And I think you put it nicely when you said that there's no place to get a grip on a divine person to get the temptation going. And I think I even agree with that. If we're thinking about just the divine components, the, just the divine nature, so the, the Father and the Holy Spirit, there's nothing there to get a grip on to tempt them. But when the Word takes on a human nature, which has its own appetitive elements, like the appetites, the lower appetites that are shared by animals, when it takes on that nature, those appetites can get riled up, even against you know the rational part of you seeing something is wrong here. I mean, wouldn't it be great if just rationally seeing, this is bad, I shouldn't want this, would be sufficient for your appetites to just calm down and stop, you know, goading you forward to do the thing that you know is sinful? Yeah, this is the old uh, modus tollens, modus ponens standoff that I experienced <laughs> sure. in my recent book that I've just finished writing. Um, <laughs> I'm saying, well, if you can be tempted, obviously you can't be divine because it says God can't be tempted plus perfect being theology. You say, well, yeah, see, but if God is human, then then he can be tempted because he's human. <laughs> yeah. I guess there's no easy way around those. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I'll grant you that if all you have there is the divine stuff, no temptation. And I think you think that's true as well, but you think there's something stronger true as well. That, no, Tim, never mind your own, your like little tricks and cheats. If it's a case that it's a divine person, it cannot be tempted full stop, period, no matter what. Let's go back to one of your favorite Latin words, qua divine, mm-hmm. Jesus can't be tempted, or he can't be tempted qua divine. Yep. But that's not all he is. So qua human, he can be. Yeah, that's my thought. We actually agree on the qua, strangely enough, because in our previous interviews a couple of years ago, you said, basically, you understand qua to mean because, you know, because, well, you say it's an ontological laser pointer. Yeah. You're saying that whatever we're talking about, it's because he has this nature. And yeah, I think that's what qua means. It's just, you know, qua husband, uh, Tim has the right to kiss Faith on the cheek when he gets home. It's just because mm-hmm. he's husband. That's why that's okay. Qua professor, <laughs> Dr. Paul has the right to fail you on a test because you refuse to do the reading. It, you, it'd be false that he had that power qua man. But he does yeah. qua professor. Yeah. yeah, no, this is all perfectly good. It's just, we, it gets silly and it gets tricky when people try to make it mean something more. We both use it that way. That's not an objection. So let's go back to temptation and Christ being tempted, because that this seems like a really important one, actually, and one that any reader of the Bible is going to think about. On the face of it, it looks like it's a problem. You discuss temptation and just quite exactly what it takes to be tempted and I was willing to buy your point that being tempted doesn't imply that you in that circumstance can actually do something wrong. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes we could be mistaken about what we're able to do, for instance. Yeah. Like maybe I'm tempted to, uh, I don't know, kick my dog viciously across the room. But actually, if I walked over and started to do that, I would see his cute little puppy eyes looking at me and I'd be overcome with compassion. <laughs> 
I gave in a temptation just by walking over there, but I actually wasn't able because I'm so doggone compassionate to do that particular sin. But I was tempted, so that seems right to me. Okay, but if you look at what the New Testament actually says about Jesus, it's more than he was just tempted full stop. So it looks like he was tempted to disobey God, which would be wrong. I take it this is what's going on in like Matthew chapter 4 when Satan comes to him and tries to get him to basically act presumptuously and in ways that's inconsistent with his mission that he knows and his calling which looks like that would be wrong. Um, And Hebrews 4, a famous passage says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested, or you could translate tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 4.15. So me and you are tested, and sometimes it doesn't go so well. We sin. But in contrast to me and you, he was tested, but without sinning. I mean, to me, that suggests that sinning was an actual possibility. I could also talk about Philippians 2, where it looks like he's obeying God, and then he gets rewarded for that obedience. So anyway, to be tested as you and I have been tested, it looks to me like that implies the risk of sin. It's just that he successfully passed those tests. So isn't this a New Testament picture of a temptable to sin, Jesus? And if he was temptable to sin, why isn't that an argument against his being fully divine? So, when you read that uh, Matthew 4 passage, uh, Jesus in the wilderness, when you say it looks like he really could have sinned, is the idea that like he felt some pull to get down and worship Satan? Is that the sort of idea that you have in mind? Yeah, because, look, he's been out, what is it, for 40 days fasting, and uh, Satan's Mm -hmm. holding out that, you know, he'll be the king of the world or something, presumably making that look like a really, a really wonderful thing. I mean, it sounds stupid if you just say it like that, like, hey, how about worshiping Satan? Like, who's going to go along with that, right? (laughs) But, uh, I mean, I take it's part of the story that in the circumstances, this was compelling you know, or to presumptuously jump off of a high height because it says God will save you, won't it? I mean, yeah, these seem like they would be sins. I mean, another maybe possibly clearer one would be when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It sounds like, especially in the Mark version, he doesn't want to be crucified. I mean, who would want to to be crucified? I mean, it's horrible. Right. He probably saw or at least knew what it involved, and he asked to be excused But then he says, okay, but not my will, but your will. And why shouldn't we take that to be, he had a decision to make there. He didn't want it to happen, but he decided to go along with God's plan, basically. And if he hadn't, that would have been a sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I read those passages, so like when I read the the Satan passage, and well, they're both Satan passages. I'll come back to the garden in a moment. But when I read the Satan passage concerning worshiping Satan for the sake of gaining all the kingdoms on earth, I guess I look at him like this. One, I think Satan's kind of a dope here. He doesn't know what he's dealing with. So I don't think Christ, given on my view, his divine knowledge of his own mission and his own identity, I don't even think it's a live option to think, here's a means I could do or perform such that I could gain the end I want, which is dominion over all of heaven and earth, which is what's owed to him, given his divine authority. It strikes me more as Satan miscalculating what he's dealing with, and less Jesus really feeling like, well, this is my mission. I should have dominion over all of heaven and earth. I know what I'll do. I'll take this easier way instead of taking the harder way through crucifixion. That's not the way it strikes me. That's not an argument. That's just me asserting Here's how the passage seems to me. Yeah, no, I mean, I admit that you could read those episodes as not involving any temptation to do wrong. But I guess I would fall back on the point about Hebrews 4.15. I mean, Mm -hmm. if he could be tempted, but not tempted to do wrong, that doesn't seem like somebody who's been tested as we are, yet without sin. It seemed like it'd be a highly misleading thing to say. Mm. I guess when I think about being tempted, and this is how I put it in the book too, I think about having an appetitive urge, an urge that comes from my appetites for getting a good thing or avoiding a bad thing, and 
I see doing the action which I'm tempted to do or which I feel the urge to do as contrary to my goals that I have for myself. So if I'm trying to lose mm -hmm. weight, I feel a real strong urge to eat the cake. And yet I think, ah, oh, that's contrary to my goal of losing 10 pounds. So I feel tempted here, but I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And so I think in that sort of case, it's a temptation without the possibility of sin, but it's still really temptation. He could be tempted like me there without having the possibility of actually sinning and, and doing a, a thing that's sinful in virtue of the temptation. When I think of being tempted in all ways, like we are, I think of that as kinds, like way kinds, mm -hmm. which is to say like not uh, tempted to download this program off a BitTorrent and not pay for it. I don't think he ever had that temptation. <laughs> yeah, sure. But, you know, the temptation to seek the pleasurable and shirk his duty as a result. Mm-hmm. Or the temptation to not go against the onerous for the sake of justice, but instead just be quiet and be quiet about the injustice. Like those sorts of things would be temptations of the broad category, seek the pleasurable aside from justice or seek not to do the onerous for the sake of justice. I think he probably had those. Like he, he thought, I want to fast for 40 days or whatever he might've been thinking out there. And he also thought, boy, bread sure would be good right now. I feel the strong urge to eat the bread. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you need. No, that's certainly right. That tempting and being tempted or being tested doesn't have to be uh, being tempted to do something wrong. It could just be something that's inconsistent with something else we're trying to do. Yeah, that's a familiar thing. Of course, what you say in the end here at some length is that Christ is both peccable, that is able to sin, and also impeccable, that is to say unable to sin. The reader may be shocked by this at first <laughs> glance. I mean, this looks like the sort of contradiction a philosopher's going to counsel avoiding. So how is it that he can be both peccable and impeccable? Yeah. So, you know, there's this move I like doing with the predicates that are supposedly true of Christ, according to Orthodox doctrine. And the idea is to take the test case I use in the earlier book, Christ is supposed to be both passable and impassable. And if you understand those as able to suffer and not able to suffer, the game is over, in my estimation. You've lost. You've contradicted yourself. So how best to understand those concepts such that there is no contradiction? Well, as you know, I, I like adding an ontological condition into the conditions under which the predicate is apt or true of something. Here's what I mean. Take the claim or the predicate is impassable. Instead of saying, can't be causally affected no matter what period, I think we should say, has a nature that can't be causally affected. And if it's passable, that means it has a concrete nature that can be causally affected. And since Christ, and only Christ, so far as we know, has two natures, Christ can be both passable and impassable, unlike me or you. Now, the very same move, the adding a has a nature such that move, is available here, and it's a move that I use. So, to be impeccable is to have a nature such that you can't sin by means of that nature. And to be peccable is to have a nature such that somebody could have that nature and sin by means of that nature. And since Christ has two natures, one of which nobody could ever sin by means of the divine nature, and one of which somebody could sin by means of, like if that nature weren't assumed, it would fulfill the conditions for being a person, and whoever that person would be would be able to sin. I think that Christ fulfills the truth conditions for both peccable and impeccable. And so he and only he, since only he has two natures, can be both peccable and impeccable. I'm sorry, that was a bit of a long-winded answer to your question. It can be followed. It makes sense. But uh, I mean, to be honest, I'm not buying this particular escape because your view is not that he could sin through his human nature because the human nature just by virtue of the union, is prevented from sin, right? That's why you said somebody could sin by it. That's right. But he couldn't. That's right, he could not. So then it seems like you shouldn't call him peccable at all. Just, it's just impeccable. Never mind if somebody else had this nature or if this nature was off on its own. I mean, that wouldn't... It's him we're talking about, right? It's not counterfactually or counterpossibly some other user of this nature. Yeah, 
mean, I'm, I'm a bit torn about this. In the book, I give a sense in which you can call him peccable in virtue of his human nature, and a sense in which you can even call him impeccable in virtue of his human nature, D- distinguishing senses in broad and narrow ways. Again, at least I hope, not providing a contradiction there for the reader. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's true that though Christ himself could never employ the power such that the employment would be sinful, he's got a power just like my powers. And those are powers that someone can employ in order to be sinful. So he's got every power required to do a sinful action. Those powers are just masked or um, precluded from operation in virtue of something else about him, which isn't true of me, which explains why I can sin with those exact same types of powers, and he can't sin even though he has the exact same types of powers. Mm. Well, I guess the reader will have to judge, <laughs> judge about the suitability of that answer. When the Trinity's podcast returns, did Jesus know all past, present, and future events in his human nature? thing that I think everybody wonders about with Jesus is, uh, you know, I've been in a Baptist church around Christmas time, and they're talking about the baby Jesus there, you know, the scene with Joseph and Mary and Mm -hmm. some farm animals, you know, that's the manger scene. And I remember the pastor saying something about, you know, this is the omniscient God here. And I thought, really, do you think this baby knows uh, everything about, you know, quantum physics and the entire history of the world, past, present, and future, and all the truths of mathematics? And come on, like, it's a baby. Mm-hmm. But what a lot of people will say, such as apologists that I read, they'll say, hey, you know, you're right about his human mind or his human nature. He's, he doesn't know everything. He has limited perspective, just like a first century Jew would have. And, you know, when he's a baby, that's very limited indeed. But yeah, it's the divine nature or through the divine nature because of the divine nature that he knows all. And uh, turns out that's not a popular answer with medieval philosophers like Thomas Aquinas or with the Catholic Church on your telling. So they say he's actually omniscient even in his human nature and even from his moment of conception. Why do they say that? Yeah, so um, I guess I would... I would say it's not omniscience properly so-called, because uh, at least Aquinas says that there are things that no human nature or no person by means of a human nature can know, like the the full extent of the divine power. But I think enough is there for your point to stand. Uh, Aquinas says, and he says everybody thinks, that Christ knew in his human intellect all things past, present, and future. So what God knows according to his knowledge of vision, all that has been is and will be, even the secret thoughts of men, and so forth. Uh, Christ knew all of that in his human intellect, or by means of his human intellect. So, oh, okay. I thought their view was that by beholding the divine essence perfectly, uh, you thereby had to know everything that God knows. And so that's why even the baby, because the beatific vision is had even by the human nature, or Christ insofar as he has a human nature. Uh, But you're saying it's not omniscience, it's just like super-duper knowledge of the past and future and things like of that nature? It's super-duper-niscience, but not omniscience, yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, it's it's knowledge of all things that a human intellect could know. But on, on the Thomistic view, and I think on most of these guys' views, there are truths about the divine itself that are inexhaustible to a human intellect and so Mm. won't even be known in the beatific vision by any human or by any mere human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you find this sort of view all over. Like I said earlier, Aquinas says everyone believes it. I've got the citation in my book or the quotation in my book for it. But you find Cyril of Alexandria and Athanasius and Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil and Augustine and John Chrysostom and Gregory the Great and Maximus the Confessor. 
and later documents of the Catholic Church and Lutheran documents from the Strong, oh, what's that called? Strong Declaration? I forget. So you find this all over the place. Now, that's not giving you a reason why you should believe it, but it's just me saying that it's a, it's a very common view in the history of Christian thought. Okay, so forget about, you know, all of the deep divine truths, but at least as far as all the things that human nature could know, or that you could know by having a human nature, um, he still knows all of those. Even if you take the baby part out, it still seems kind of outrageous, because then he would know his entire past, present, and future, what's happening at all places. But he goes around in the Gospels, you know, who touched me, or, right. hi, what's your name, you know? seeming to not know a lot of things, but I guess their view is, yeah, he, he really does. He's just not letting on. Yeah, I mean, that's the view. On the one hand, there's a distinction they draw between dispositional and occurrent knowledge. You no doubt know your, your math facts of like, you know, eight times seven, and yet you don't know those occurrently. That is, it's not on the forefront of your mind all the time. It's dispositional. It's there to be pulled out when needed. And so it's not that Christ was going through his daily mission, saving humans from the powers of evil and sin, and also thinking the, the number of inches between Dale and Tim at every moment of Dale and Tim's lives. Mm-hmm. So it was there for the having if needed, is I think the idea. Mm. But really there. One might think even that is just past human capacity, but I guess we don't really know what the limits of human capacity would be. Mm-hmm. Let me try one objection to you that I think is a powerful objection, and you don't get into this in the book. It's a little more text-based than, than just the purely kind of conceptual things you get into in the book as far as objections. So, mm-hmm. you know, in Matthew and, and Mark, Christ says that he doesn't know the day or hour of his future return. He doesn't say, for instance, um, I don't know it in my uh, or because of my human nature, but I do because of my divine nature, or... I don't know it currently, but I know it dispositionally. Mm-hmm. He doesn't make any qualifications. He just says, hey, I don't know this. In fact, only the Father knows it. So it seems to me like this creates a pretty serious problem when you combine in the traditional view that you see in all of these medieval figures, I guess, and, and ancient and early medieval figures as well, that he wasn't ignorant in any way or to, to any degree so, okay, it follows that he really does know the day and hour of his return, and that, of course, is the kind of thing that a human being could know, but he just told everybody he didn't, and it seems to me that he would be deliberately deceiving them if he did that, because since he didn't give any qualification, they're going to understand that to mean, I don't know in any way, shape, or form. Like, if you say, hey, Dale, do you have five bucks on you? And I say no. And I'm thinking, well, I do in my right pocket, but not in my left pocket. So I'm just answering regarding my left pocket. You walk away sad because you couldn't bum $5 (laughs) off me. I've just deceived you intentionally, which that's not necessarily wrong, but it seems like uh, something we should want to avoid attributing to such a wonderfully good person that he would would lie about something like that. Yeah, lying I understand to be just intentionally causing someone to believe something that you believe is false. Mm-hmm. Do you accept the consequence that he lied to them and treat it as a justified lie, or do you take the view that it wasn't a lie, or how would you answer that objection? Yeah, I would have to take the view that it wasn't a lie there, um, and so I can think of one or two ways folks have thought to say that it wasn't a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, I liked the the $5 example you gave, like you have it in your left pocket, but not your right, because that's the way it sounds to me when people say, oh, he knew it in his divine intellect, but did not know it in his human intellect. I mean, that's, that's like knowing it and having it in one pocket, but not having it in the other. If he says he doesn't know, what he really means is he doesn't know it in this one way. That sounds mm-hmm. like, that sounds like the same, you'd have the same sort of problem there. I could even accept it if, you know, say the apostles knew that he would talk amongst the apostles about his two natures, and so they would get it. And if he wants to, like, let the masses draw a wrong conclusion, maybe that's justified. I don't say that all deception is morally wrong, but still, this one looks bad to me because it's just everybody, you know, and it wasn't like some kind of inside thing where he's just going to let the, the people that don't deserve to have the full insight uh, just draw the wrong conclusions. 
Because the reader of the gospel is one of those people, you know, like the Catholic or Protestant uh, Orthodox person just reading this, like, okay, so he doesn't know the day or the hour, right? The deception would still apply to them. Yeah, I see the point, and I, I feel a pull, especially because this is the sort of argument that Catholics give concerning John 6, where, I mean, like, come on, look, he's saying, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and he's letting these people walk away. I mean, it'd be disingenuous, I mean... So it's, it strikes me as analogous to those sorts of, to at least that passage. Um, maybe others will think it's not. I'm okay with that. I'm okay if he wants to drive people off by saying outrageous things. I don't think that always is wrong, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I might not do it on average day of the week, but he can do a lot of things I wouldn't <laughs> do, you know, not, not be wrong. So, Okay, well, let me give you two different ways people have understood those passages. First way. You can understand it like this. It's based on an analogy of what God tells Abraham after Abraham doesn't sacrifice Isaac but was going to. Uh, There in Genesis, God says to Abraham, now I know that you love me. Augustine and Aquinas both comment on this passage, Aquinas following Augustine. And Augustine says, what could this mean? It's not as if God didn't know beforehand and now knows afterwards. So in what sense is it known to God? And Augustine's view was, ah, Here's what he's saying. Now I make it known that you know me. It's reading the passive as the active voice. Not now I do know, but now I make known that you love me. And so likewise here, when Christ says, no one knows the hour except for the Father, or not even the Son, he's saying no one makes it known except for the Father. So that's one way people have talked about it. What do you think? Yeah, I know great people have said this, like Augustine, (laughs) but... I don't see how you can read it that way, you know, like. Okay. You want to hear the second one? Sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's elsewhere in Acts, it's Acts 1-7. Mm-hmm. Christ says, or it says, he said to them, it is not for you to know the time or dates the father is set by his own authority. So what he here says, he doesn't know. Elsewhere he says, it's not for him to tell them what it is. Mm. And so some folks have read these two passages and thought, well, He's already told them it's not for them to know. I mean, what if it's like this? What if it's like, guys, come on, I'm not going to tell you. I don't know it's with with the authority of telling it to you. I don't know it in that respect. Hmm. Or maybe here's something I like, but nobody else does. Uh, I Like when my kids ask me, hey, dad, what's in my birthday gift? And they shake the box that's wrapped. And I say, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Am I lying to them? Well, no, they know and I know by the context that while I said I don't know, what I meant was actually something a bit different than I don't know. What I meant is I ain't going to tell you, mister. And it could be the case, not that Jesus would play coy and say it in that goofy voice, but sometimes context does change what proposition is asserted when you say something like this. I don't know. So it could be like that too. In that example, I don't think that, because of the way you explained this scenario, I don't think it is deception. It's a Mm -hmm. way of communicating just that you're not going to say. They kind of get that. They realize that you do know. They're not like, oh, that's strange. Dad doesn't know. (laughs) Mom not tell him, you know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the Acts case, uh, I mean, look for all he says in the incident in the Gospels. Maybe he doesn't know then, but he does know later on after his resurrection Oh, yeah, that's a good point. But I'm not sure I'm going to be satisfied with that as well. But again, the reader the reader must judge. <laughs> uh, well, that's not in the book, but um, there are right. many, many interesting things in the book. And uh, I, again, I think it's valuable just not only for the precision of the arguments, but for the engagement with other material defending two natures, you know, such as by Tom Morris or Richard Swinburne. Mm-hmm. but also with, you know, the people who really kind of put this into mainstream tradition, people like Cyril and Pope Leo and people like that. So, Yeah. And I guess I should note in the book, um, the foreknowledge thesis, this thesis we've been discussing that Christ by his human intellect knows all things past, present, and future. That's not a thesis I ever assert as true or required to be true for the work I'm doing. All I'm mm-hmm. saying is, look, possibly. Mm-hmm. Da, 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 da. And if you can join that claim with all the other claims we've talked about so far today, all the other claims plus conciliar Christology, question, is that whole conjunction consistent or not? Which, And you can say all of that and still think the whole thing is false. 
like you might do this with the Norse gods or, you know, with, with the Greek gods, you might try to make a consistent story of all the things said about them without yourself believing that there really are Norse or Greek gods. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're going to come, come away knowing more what you think about this whole topic, I think. And that's the mark of a good book right there. Mm, yeah. Thank you. So, well, Dr. Paul, thank you for again talking with us. Oh, it's been so much fun. I hope to be able to do it again sometime. Absolutely. This week's thinking music has been the track Free Will Possession by X Takerux. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. Also, you might want to check out the blog post for this week's episode because I've put some arguments there, one from Dr. Paul and a couple from me, that I recommend for your consideration. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.